Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And uh, this evening we are at chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and our text is verses 1 through 5. Hear God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. As we have moved now from chapter 2 into chapter 3, we may wonder, especially as we consider the the content of of what's going on here in Paul's letter, we might wonder why there is a chapter break at this point. And there's a humorous story that is told of a monk who was riding um, his donkey and he was reading his manuscript of the scriptures and his pencil put a mark on the manuscript whenever the donkey jogged. And so it is that the donkey jogged between chapter 2 verse 20 and chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. It's a joke. <laughs> um, the thing is, we don't know, right, um, uh, well... Not all chapter breaks in the Bible are logical, and we remember that the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible do not have chapter or verse breaks. Um, They were added later by translators for purposes of organization. And because these breaks are not part of the inspired scriptures, it's permissible, and in fact, sometimes it's best to ignore the breaks in order to get a proper sense of the text. And so really here in chapter 3, the apostle is continuing the same line of thought with which he ended chapter 2. And uh, in the final verses of chapter 2, Paul is continuing the the defense of his ministry among the Thessalonian believers. There were enemies of Paul and of the church of Jesus Christ who were trying to discredit Paul in order to discredit the gospel And they were essentially saying that the apostle was in ministry for selfish gain. Earlier, he had left Thessalonica because he was being persecuted, but his enemies made a big deal out of his leaving, and they used it as an opportunity to accuse Paul of having abandoned the church. They claimed that his his leaving indicated that he had no real love for the people of the church there in Thessalonica. And so in response, Paul has been explaining to the believers that he has wanted to see them again. He's even made plans to see them again. He's attempted to do so, but has not been able. And uh, he has explained that Satan, who hates the progress of the gospel among God's people, hindered him and his companions. And now in chapter 3, Paul is continuing to defend his ministry, and he does so by telling them what he did out of love for them. And it's proof of Paul's genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians that he sent Timothy to minister to them. And it's in this context of Paul sending Timothy 
that we learn more about the concerns that Paul had for the Thessalonians. It's evident from what Paul says here and in other parts of this epistle that the believers in Thessalonica were being persecuted for their faith. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, there's a reference to their steadfastness or, depending on your translation, their patience or their endurance. Uh, The word there clearly implies they are suffering for their faith. Uh, Still in chapter 1, verse 6, refers to how they received the word in much affliction. Uh, The NIV says, in spite of severe suffering. Chapter 2.14 makes reference to how the Thessalonians were just like the Christians in Judea and how they suffered for their faith at the hands of their own countrymen. And now as we come to chapter 3, we find in verse 3, Paul expressing his concern that the believers not be moved or not be shaken by these afflictions or these trials. And as part of his strategy to strengthen their faith, in verse 4 he tells them that persecution or suffering for the Lord is something that believers should actually expect. So Paul's main concern in these verses is about how the people of Thessalonica are responding to this persecution that they are facing. Is their faith holding up under the pressure? Are they continuing to stand strong for the Lord? Or are they falling away? Are they becoming perhaps disheartened? Are they becoming discouraged to the point that they are abandoning their faith? And Paul understood, and you also must understand, that persecution and really all forms of trials and tribulations can become a temptation to sin. Persecution challenges your faith. And Paul's purpose for sending Timothy to the sheep under his care is expressed there in verse 3 when he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. Or as the NIV says, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And the Greek word translated as moved or as shaken or as unsettled, it's, it's a word that's very difficult to translate And my study of the word actually indicates that we don't really have the best English translation here. Uh, The Greek word refers literally to a dog wagging its tail. That sounds odd, right? Um, Stick with me. The related idea goes along with that is to fawn upon, to flatter, and thus to fool with flattery. And so think for a moment of a dog, a dog wagging its tail at your approach and You normally would think of that as a sign of its friendliness. But ultimately, dogs wag their tails because they want something from you, whether it's to be petted or or fed. And so it is that people can approach you like a dog wagging its tail and thus give an appearance of genuine love and concern, but they're actually only trying to fool you with flattery. And the enemies of the believers in Thessalonica were like this. They didn't come like a dog with fangs exposed. No, they came with heavy hearts, with concern for their friends. They came expressing how sorry they were that these Christians continue to hold on to their faith and have to suffer persecution for it. So they approached these believers in a friendly way. They were wagging their tails, so to speak. And such enemies are probably the most dangerous of all. Hendrickson, in his commentary, speculates that the enemy said something like the following to the Thessalonian believers, quote, we can fully understand how it was that you were led astray by these enthusiastic foreigners who came from Philippi. 
You were led to believe that they had your interest at heart, but their sudden departure and their failure to return clearly proves that they were not concerned about you at all. Moreover, the things that have happened to you since their coming shows that the gods are not pleased with you. Why exchange that which is tried and tested for something novel? Rejoin our ranks, the ranks of those who have always admired and respected you, and we'll promise you that we will never mention the subject again. End quote. This is hypothetical, um, but it is meant to give you a probable idea of what was happening to these new believers and why Paul was concerned. His concern was that these new Christians going through these afflictions were going to be fooled by those who came to them as though friends, wagging their tails. And so one translation of verse 3 um, rightly captures uh, the idea, I believe. It, it, it captures it correctly when it says that Paul is sending Timothy to prevent any of you from being deceived. He sent Timothy to prevent any of you from being deceived in the midst of these afflictions. Or another similar translation would read that no one let himself be fooled in these afflictions. So the danger was real that there were these well-meaning, perhaps, but unbelieving friends who might fool these professing believers into leaving their professed faith. But even apart from the influence of these unbelieving friends, there are a whole host of other temptations that affect, perse- uh, that affect persecuted believers anyway. In, 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 some things that happen as a, a normal matter of course. When we face hardships as a believer, it's very natural and easy to become discouraged where we question God, we question his ways with us. We may question if, even, if we even want to be a Christian because of the trials um, involved with being a believer. Professing Christ and living a Christian life are always going to bring down upon yourself the ridicule and mocking of the world. Sometimes it can bring physical harm. Sometimes it means being on the receiving end of cruel jokes. Being a Christian may mean isolation and alienation from family and former friends. Being a Christian often involves being misunderstood and misjudged by others. And we know from the book of Acts that there were, there in Thessalonica, Jews that hated the gospel. And they successfully drove Paul and his companions out of Thessalonica. And you can be sure that they did their share to harass the church, to harass the Christians there in Thessalonica who remained in the church. And remember as well that the Thessalonian Gentile believers came out of a pagan lifestyle of idol worship. And the changes involved in becoming a Christian in that culture were, were drastic. They, they were extremely noticeable, probably affecting one's social status almost in, in every way. Often uh, Christians in such cultures were treated as outcasts with not even a place to work or live. Whenever you find yourselves in circumstances in any way, on any level similar, these, are, these kinds of things are going to be a challenge to your faith as a Christian. Paul makes reference toward the end of verse 5 to how the tempter turns such persecutions into an opportunity to tempt us into sin. He says, uh, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The tempter is the devil. 
He's called the tempter because it is his mission to lead people into sin. Satan loves to see believers like you and me harassed by the pressures of the world. He longs to see a struggle. But more than that, his goal is that we would abandon our faith in a fit of cursing against God. Can you recall the interaction between the devil and God that's recorded in the book of Job? God allowed the devil to bring all kinds of terrible things into Job's life. He lost his family, his possessions, his health. He lost virtually everything that is naturally precious to us in this life. And the devil's goal in bringing these hardships into Job's life was to make him curse God. And so it is with the Thessalonians and with us today that the devil brings hardships into our lives and his goal is to destroy us spiritually. He wants our trials to become temptations. He wants the tribulation that you are going through to become an occasion for sin. He wants you to worry. He wants you to complain. He wants you to murmur against God. He wants you to hate being a Christian to the point where you throw Christ and his word out of your life. And this explains Paul's concern for the believers in Thessalonica. He was concerned that their trust in God might not hold up under the pressure. What must be clearly understood is that Paul is not concerned about true believers ultimately losing their faith. It's not a passage of scripture that in any way teaches that a person can have genuine faith and then lose it under the pressures of persecution. And to help you understand this important point, I would have you to recall the the sequence of events that took place in the lives of the Thessalonians. William Hendrickson in his commentary summarizes the events this way. And so if we think back in time for a moment, Hendrickson says that first Paul and his companions carry on their evangelistic activity in Thessalonica but are soon forced to leave. While still there, the Thessalonians, that is many of them, appear to accept the gospel with enthusiasm. But was this a merely emotional reaction, or was it genuine faith? Second, in their absence, the missionaries wonder about this. Meanwhile, persecution continues. Will the genuine character of the faith of the Thessalonians be proved by their willingness to endure tribulation for the sake of Christ? Will they understand that this tribulation is not contrary to God's plan, but in accordance with it? Third, so Timothy is sent in order to learn about this. He returns with a glowing report, praising the Thessalonians for their work, exertion, and endurance under persecution. Four, being now thoroughly convinced that the conversion of the Thessalonians had been genuine, that their acceptance of the gospel with joy had been a work of the Spirit and not merely outward, Paul sits down at once to write 1 Thessalonians. He now writes about their work resulting from faith their exertion prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And he derives all of this from their election by God. If we view the order of events in this light, justice is done both to the concern of Paul in 3 verse 5 for their faith and to the conviction expressed in chapter 1 that these are truly elect believers in Christ. In no way does 3 verse 5 teach that God's truly chosen ones can, after all, perish everlastingly, end quote. Fact of the matter is that these trials the Thessalonian believers went through did not destroy their faith. Uh, Paul was wondering if they had genuine faith, they professed faith, and uh, 
it is very obvious that they had genuine faith, and these trials did not destroy their faith. There are indications here um, in the verses before us that even before Paul learned of their strong faith, he, Paul was not expecting the Thessalonians to be weak in their faith. He was not pessimistic, as though convinced that he would hear a bad report. In fact, Paul's words at the end of verse 5 tell us that he was doubtful about finding things had gone bad. Um, there in Thessalonica, I'm referring to that phrase there at the end, and our labor would be in vain. Our English translation really doesn't completely bring out the meaning of the Greek. Um, the ESV there has the word would, our labor would be in vain. Um, probably the better word, English word, would be might. We might we, when we say something might happen, um, it means we're not quite sure it will. And so it is that the form of the Greek verb used here expresses an unfulfilled purpose. Because there was no real ground for concern, because the people had not succumbed to temptation, because the members had not abandoned their faith, because there had been lasting results to Paul's ministry by the grace of God, Paul speaks only of what might have been. At the same time, Paul had been genuinely concerned about their spiritual well-being, and it was right of him to be concerned. This wasn't due to a lack of faith on Paul's part. He was simply aware of the fact that God's people are not always strong in their faith. He was aware of the fact that we can give in to temptations under persecution. He was aware of the fact that God's people sometimes need strengthening through such means as a man like Timothy ministering the word of God to them. In fact, there's every reason to believe that part of why Paul could speak of his ministry in Thessalonica as not having been in vain is because God blessed the ministry of Timothy among them. Uh, we learn in chapter 3 that Paul's concern uh, for the Thessalonians compelled him to send Timothy to them. After Paul and his companions were forced to leave Thessalonica, Paul right away wanted to return and he made plans to do so, but these plans did not work out. And as chapter 3 opens, we see that Paul's concern did not fade. He writes, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. He, uh, he says, uh, when we could bear it no longer, or when we could stand it no longer. Uh, the Greek refers to trying to keep something watertight, trying to contain something and the idea is that Paul and his companions could not contain themselves any longer. Something had to be done. And so they sent Timothy. Paul and Silas were in Athens at the time. We know that Silas was soon sent back to Macedonia, probably to Philippi. But before that, it was agreed by the three of them that Timothy will go back to Thessalonica. And for reasons unknown to us, Paul himself was not able to go back. But Timothy could. And of course, this would mean leaving Paul alone in Athens. And Paul brings up the point that he was alone in Athens to show the Thessalonians that it involved loving sacrifice on his part to send Timothy. Uh, Paul would have naturally preferred not to have been left alone in Athens. But Paul agreed to it for the sake of the Thessalonians. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that he very consciously and deliberately sent to them a good man, a brother, a minister of God, a co-worker, that is, a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. 
And Timothy was a faithful man. He was a true servant of God. He was a man genuinely concerned for the welfare of God's people, a man that Paul most definitely could have used uh, to assist him in ministry in Athens, but instead Timothy's valuable uh, service would be used in Thessalonica. And Paul tells us of the twofold purpose of Timothy's ministry there at the end of verse 2, to establish you and exhort you in your faith. The ultimate goal being that they would not be deceived or fooled in the afflictions as we talked about earlier, and uh, both the establishment and encouraging of the people in their faith has to do with the strengthening of their faith. That word establishing uh, comes from a Greek word which literally refers in construction to putting in a buttress or a support. And the word is sometimes translated as to fix or to make fast. So we might say Timothy was sent to keep the Thessalonians grounded in their faith to make sure that they were continuing to trust God. And related to that work was this exhorting them or encouraging them in the faith. Um, This word translated exhort here in the ESV, strictly speaking, uh, basically means to call to one's side. And uh, sometimes this is done in order to give aid. We might call someone over to to give them aid. Sometimes uh, the word is translated as to encourage or to comfort. It also has the idea of making an appeal to someone. In other words, calling them to you in order to, to speak to them and to urge them to some action. And so here Paul is talking about urging or exhorting the people to continue to trust God. Timothy was encouraging the people to continue what they've been doing. They've been doing well, and so he encouraged them to keep it up. They must resist the temptations of the devil as the devil comes to them, challenging their faith. They must continue to live as Christians despite their persecution. Of course, we don't know exactly what Timothy told the people, but we can be sure that his instruction given to strengthen their faith was essentially the same as Paul now gives in this epistle. And Paul reminds the people in verse 3 that believers are appointed to suffer afflictions for the sake of Christ. In uh, verse 4, Paul reminds the people of how he had already warned them that they would suffer such persecution He never told them that as Christians, life would be a bed of roses. He told them the truth. He told them to expect persecution. And it happened just as he had predicted. And hearing these words of Paul and imagining yourself to be these persecuted Thessalonians, you might wonder how these words could be encouraging. Paul is essentially telling them these persecutions are to be expected. They are normal. And the same is true for you today. Suffering for Christ is normal. You must anticipate that it will happen. Paul writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So having to endure trials and tribulations, that's part of life. And again, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't really help me. That doesn't encourage me. I want to hear that things are going to go well. I want to hear that God is going to deliver me from persecution. 
But God never promises his children. He never promises you that you're going to have an easy life. In fact, he promises just the opposite. At the same time, we can be assured of some truths that are very comforting and encouraging in the midst of trials. First of all, God is in absolute control of your life. And this includes the trials that you're facing. In verse 3, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that believers have been appointed or destined uh, to suffer persecution. Um, verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, therefore yourselves know that we were destined for this. This word destined, or your, maybe your translation says appointed, refers to how God has planned even predestined the trials that his children face. Your entire life was planned by God in eternity and included in this plan is the suffering that you will experience. And if you stop and think about it, the, the sovereignty of God over suffering is one of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture. And you can see this more clearly if you think of the opposite. Imagine what it would be like if the trials that you were experiencing were outside of God's power. Imagine how discouraging and hopeless it would be if the tribulations of life were due to, to, to Satan having the upper hand over God. In other words, it's a great comfort to know that God is in control of Satan. He's in control of the persecution of his people. And since your suffering is even planned by God, predestined by God, then God has a wise and good purpose for these trials in your life. Which brings us to a second comforting truth. By God's sovereign design, God always blesses his people through trials. Satan, of course, he has his own goals. He has his own motives. He sends trials our way to harm us. He's trying to destroy us. God sends trials to improve us, to bless us spiritually. And so God uses Satan's evil designs to benefit us. Satan is hoping, he's figuring that through persecution, he's going to be able to tempt us to sin. He wants us to fall into despair and to curse God. But what happens, by God's grace, we are strengthened in our faith through trials. Rather than turn our backs on God, we pray to him for the help that we need. Rather than become angry with God, we actually turn to him with greater faith. And what inevitably happens is that our love for him grows as we see that he is faithful and as he meets our needs. And so for the child of God, for you as a child of God and for the church of Jesus Christ, persecution has never been truly harmful. Have you experienced this blessing of God in your life? Have you found yourself being drawn closer to God through a time of difficulty? Persecution, but really all hardships, end up by God's grace being good for us. May it be clear as we close this evening that this blessing, the blessing of persecution, the blessing of trials is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ's atoning work on the cross, we would be sinners who deserve only wrath from, from, our, from our creator God. We, we could never expect blessing from God. Apart from a relationship with, with uh, God in Christ, it would not be true that our trials are benefiting us. On the other hand, with Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything works together for your good. 
And this is because Christ, by his death and his resurrection, by his perfect obedience, by his work of salvation, has earned for us the righteousness by which we can experience God's blessings and favor. And the result of God's saving work on your behalf is that we are now the objects of God's love now and forever. This love for us never fails. This love for us never diminishes. This love abides with you, child of God, even through the hardships of life. And the love of God in Christ means that God transforms even the most difficult times in your life into something, into, into something beautiful, into something beneficial. Paul saw that this work of grace was evident in the lives of the Thessalonians. And this only proved to him all the more that they were the elect of God. Remember how he spoke of that in the earlier part of this letter, that he knew that they were elect. Well, part of that is because of their response to trials. So what is your response to the trials in your life? Is it a response of faith? A response of faith is to trust that Jesus has earned you favor with God. And you must believe that this is a favor which even trials the devil and the world cannot destroy. Because of your salvation in Jesus Christ, your response to trial should be to rejoice. To rejoice in your sovereign, loving God. You can trust his perfect, his plan, his loving plan for your life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that persecution has never fulfilled the, the, the goals of the devil in destroying your church, in destroying the faith of your people. Lord, we thank you that you preserve your people. And uh, we thank you, Father, that uh, even though we can and are tempted at times by, by trials, Lord, uh, we thank you for your sustaining grace. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we do face afflictions, that we would actually be drawn closer to you, that we would find ourselves being strengthened in our faith, that we would not be deceived by these afflictions or by those who bring them, uh, but, Father, that we would realize that, in fact, afflictions are, are planned for us by you. They are part of your good and perfect and wise plan. And so, Father, may we receive them as from your hand, and may we learn from them, and uh, Lord, we pray that most of all we would not um, in any way allow persecutions to cause us to turn from you. Lord, um, we thank you for these words of comfort. We thank you for the fact that you have given uh, such uh, laborers uh, to your church, um, leaders who are concerned for the well-being of the flock. Lord, we pray that you continue to provide for your people uh, watchmen, those who are, who are there to, to guard our faith. And uh, Lord, we uh, thank you that the, the end, the, the plan is that one day Christ will return, that he will gather his people, that it will be evident that not one of his elect has been lost. And uh, Father, we thank you that the plan is that we would share in the glory of our Savior. Lord, we give thanks and uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.